Wow. I love that song because of the truth it carries. And that's what we're talking about today. The incarnation of holy God in the flesh of man. It's a crazy thing to even try and wrap our heads around. What an amazing thing the Lord has done. So, you see the decorations. Praise the Lord, there's a little sun shining through the window today. And uh, it's the Advent season. It's the Advent season. Advent is the anticipated coming, the arrival, finally. That's what that word means. It's the remembrance of the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world with us, like us, for us. As part of our remembrance and waiting, we're considering the person of Christ, all of Him. In particular, we're doing that through Philippians 2. We've been preaching through Philippians And it just so happens that this particular part of the book uh, highlights the very person of Christ and the work of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. In the last week, Neil focused on the fact that Jesus was and is eternal God. Long before he became a man, he was eternal God. And as I've been thinking about God becoming a man this week. I was struck by the idea that people and even the angels, even the angels have wondered about the mystery of how this could even be. It's practically inexpressible because it's so difficult to fathom. Last week we sang a song called Arrival. It's a beautiful song, like the songs we sung today, of praise and worship to Jesus. It it tries to describe the incarnation from Christ's perspective. I was reading the lyrics, and if I counted right, the writers used 13 different metaphors or comparisons to try and describe what it was like for Jesus to empty himself of his divine prerogatives and subject himself to the frailties and faults of a sin-stained humanity. There's no simple way to fully express what he's done or why he did it. Now with that in mind, let's read Philippians 2. We'll read 1 through 11 and consider today the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you can, please stand with me and we'll read this. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of 
others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord Jesus, this day, this passage, this is, this is all about you and the amazing wonder, the work that you performed, the will that you ex- showed towards us, the fact that you became like us. Lord, would you help us today? We need the help of your spirit. We need your mind to know what happened here and why it matters to us. Help us, Lord by giving us the ability to fully grasp what you have done and draw us near to you in the process, Lord, that we may rejoice in your presence, that we may find rest in you, that we may be encouraged and excited about the love and the power that you have exerted on our behalf. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This passage makes it clear that Jesus is God before he was a man in the flesh. Like we said last week, Neil covered the fact that Jesus was and is eternal God. I'm not going to cover that ground today. Um, But by necessity, I'll have to touch on it a little bit here and there. So this week, we're going to look into the facts, that the, the very fact that Jesus took on human flesh, and he retains that flesh forevermore. This was not just an in-and-out, kind of a phantom, you know, phantasmic kind of thing. When he did this, he did this forever. So this week we're going to explore three key questions here. What did Jesus do when he emptied himself? And why did Jesus, who by nature is God, take on human flesh? And then in the context of Philippians, what is the application for us? Why does this matter? So in verses 6 through 8, we'll start there. We're going to focus on those verses uh, today. It's clear that Jesus was, in fact, a man. It's as though he was in the form of God, the very nature of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of the very nature of a servant being born in the likeness or the perfect representation of men and then being found in human form, which is the word there is the exact outward appearance. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus became a man. 
some of the most drastic changes we witness in the natural world occur in insects. What happens to a caterpillar? Oh, I think caterpillar, butterfly, right? It becomes a moth or a butterfly, depending on the species. The caterpillar and the butterfly have completely different likenesses, ex outward expressions. But they have one nature. The DNA in a caterpillar that becomes a moth is the same DNA. It doesn't change the DNA when it changes the form. It has one nature. The caterpillar becomes a butterfly by a process known as metamorphosis. In the usage of that word, meta means change, morpho means form or very nature. That's a word we see used in this passage, morphe. Cis is a suffix applying the idea of a process. The external appearance of the caterpillar and the butterfly are totally different. Their likenesses are completely different. However, if you look at the inmost being, the caterpillar and the resulting butterfly have the same nature. They don't go from one species to another, nor are they two different species somehow joined together in some strange way. In the caterpillar, butterfly, there's, there's one nature with two distinct likenesses or expressions. Now, why, you may wonder, am I blathering about caterpillars in the pulpit at Christmas time? Right? This seems kind of weird, but I'm talking about this because understanding the difference between internal nature and external expression are integral to understanding what Paul's telling us in this passage. This is crucial for us. Paul's talking about the incarnation of Christ here, and the words he's using are very purposefully chosen to talk about Christ's internal nature and his external expression of that nature. Butterflies just happen to illustrate that really well. And we typically relate the word morphe or morph to it's a, it's a word of Greek origin as meaning physical or, or external form. It's what you, your eyes see or what your ears hear, what your skin touches, right? But that's not exactly how Paul uses it here. That's part of it, but that's not exactly how Paul uses it here. Morphe is a word you see translated in multiple ways in English translations of the New Testament. And that indicates that this word is a word that doesn't really have a good direct trans equivalent in English, right? And so the translators have struggled to really nail down the, the, the actual, the essence, the meaning of this word in our language as they're translating it for us. Sometimes it's translated form as in the ESV, like I've read. But it may be better translated as very nature, as it is in the NIV, because very nature really kind of includes more the idea of both the internal and the external. The best understanding of Paul's use of morphe is to think of it as saying the external expression of the inward being. 
The inward being, or the DNA of a caterpillar, includes in it all of the coding for the external expressions of both caterpillar and butterfly. Right? So Philippians 2.6 clearly indicates that Christ possessed and expressed the very nature, morphe, the form, that word there is morphe, of an eternal deity before he became a man. It also shows us that in the nature of deity, he did not consider the expression of that deity something to be held onto jealously, something to be grasped hold of and, and clung to. The word selflessness is not literally in that verse, but we can kind of see the essence of it there, can't we? Now, in his word study of Philippians, Kenneth Woos notes that the way Paul's words are ordered in verse 7 indicates that the taking occurred before the emptying. That shows initiative on the part of Christ. He took on the nature of a bondservant, being made, being physically born in the very likeness of men, which resulted in or required the emptying of self. In order to become a man, he had to empty himself. There's something about the divine expression that could not come into the physical expression. The likeness of flesh does not enjoy the divine desires or prerogatives, not the least of which is to legitimately be glorified for who he is as creator and sustainer. Becoming a man, which is how Jesus expresses, externally expresses, the nature, the internal nature of a bondservant, required him to set aside his desires and his prerogatives, which is for him to set aside self in order, in exchange, rather, for serving others. This is what Paul means by saying that Jesus emptied himself. He set aside his prerogative to express his glory of his own volition for his own sake. You see that? In his divine nature, he has the ability to express his glory for his own volition and for his own sake. He set that aside. The word translated likeness means that Jesus' flesh was like our flesh. He was born like us. He grew up like us. He learned like us. He gained favor with men and God like us. Jesus got tired and hungry just like us. Jesus bled and died for us. Jesus, through his nat- though his nature is divine, became a man in the likeness of all men. The morphe, the very nature or form of his divinity, is still entirely present. It is simply not being externally expressed between his birth and resurrection. So that the morphe, the very nature of a servant, is instead expressed during that period of time. 
Now, I noted earlier that Paul shows us the essence of selflessness in the eternal nature of Christ back in verse 6 there. By stripping the external expression of his eternal glory and divine prerogative, his selflessness is magnified and expressed as a bondservant in human flesh. Becoming a man required Christ to set aside the external expression of deity, but not the possession of the nature of deity. Jesus did not cease to be eternal God when he began to develop inside Mary's womb. But he did become a man. The expression of his very nature is both eternal God and man. One divine nature with two very different, coexistent, and compatible expressions. Amazingly enough, and we have a hard time wrapping our head around that part. So that's what the text tells us. Why? Now, why did Jesus empty himself and become a man? Why did he do this? There are many reasons or effects of the work of Christ as a man. I don't have time today to cover them all. I'm going to give you a quick list of seven reasons. I'm going to grab a bottle of water here. And uh, don't try to write these down. I'll include them in the notes for the blog. I'm going to cover just two or three if I have time today. So, So here's a quick list of seven. Christ became a man for us to be the... Represent, he, he did this for representative obedience on our behalf. I'm going to talk about that in detail here. He, came, he did so to become a substitutional sacrifice for us. He did this to become the one mediator between God and men. He did it to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over creation, to be our example and pattern in life, to be the pattern for our redeemed bodies in the future eternity to come, and to sympathize for us as high priest. This isn't even an exhaustive list. We keep searching the Scriptures, you'll find more particular reasons it's all, or results of what he has done here. So let's talk about three of these in particular. Let's talk about the representative obedience. What does that mean? The first man, Adam, failed. He disobeyed God. And as a consequence, he and all of his descendants, including us, suffer from sin. Paul picks this up in Romans 5, 18 through 19. He says, then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous It's no coincidence that Jesus' first act after being baptized and commissioned by God to lead is, is to be, he's led out into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. That's his first act. Did you ever notice that? That's not a coincidence. Obedience to God 
in the face of temptation was part of the mission. The temptation of Jesus is recorded in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Luke 4, 1 through 13. And they contain, both of those contain collectively notable parallels with the temptation of Adam and Eve, which you can see in Genesis 2, 15 through 3, 7. I'm not going to read those today as we don't have time. But I want us to take another look at a related passage here that speaks to this also. Let's look real quickly at 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47. Paul again writing, says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Paul refers to Adam as the first man and Jesus as the second man and last Adam in that passage. Just as the sin of the first Adam was imputed on the condemned, imputed on and condemned all mankind to follow, to follow obedience of Christ. I'm sorry, I need to drink. My mouth is sticking. Um, so just as the first sin of mankind was imputed on all men afterwards, in the same way the obedience of Christ is imputed on all people who would follow him afterwards. Jesus had to be a man. These passages show Jesus had to be a man in order to represent us and obey in our place. That's representative obedience. And that's part of why he did this. Second, Jesus came to be a substitute sacrifice for us. If Jesus had not been a man, he could not have died in our place and paid the penalty that was due to us. God can't die. God doesn't die. He's eternal. He had to be a man. Hebrews 2, 16 through 17 tells us, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Wow. So that, there's a purpose, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. There's the substitution. Propitiation for the sins of the people. Romans 8.3 goes on and says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus could not become an angel to help us. He had to literally become like us in order to help us. We saw in Philippians that Jesus chose to become a man. He wanted to help us. His becoming a man was necessary for us because the life of a perfect man was necessary in order to satisfy the wrath of God and bring the people of God back into relationship with him. If Christ was not fully a man, he could not have died to pay the penalty for our sins. 
which means that he could not have been a substitutionary sacrifice for us. He had to be in the flesh. Third point, to be the one mediator between God and men. One mediator between God and men. He had to be a man. Because our sin alienates us from God, we need someone to come between God and us and bring us back to him. Not someone like us, because someone like us has that sin, right? Somebody that's born just like us, in, of a man and a woman. It's, we're all born out of the same seed of Adam. We all have that same condemnation. We need someone holy to be that mediator between us and God, to bring us back to him. This is accomplished in Jesus. God our Savior, 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between man and God. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There's the substitution again, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus had to be a man to fulfill the role of mediator between God and men. Because the role is directly associated with giving himself as a ransom. That's the substitutionary sacrifice. You can't separate the two. They're different things, but they're both related. Now I want you to note in that passage there in, in Timothy is that the mediator is a communicator. He gives testimony at the proper time. That is, he testifies to God, either for us, if we are found in him, obeying him and believing that he is the Son of God who died and rose for us, or against us, if otherwise. He's also the revelation of the truth of salvation in Christ alone to all people. He's communicating to God and to us, he's the mediator between us and God. Those are some of the key particulars that I wanted to look at as far as why. Why Jesus came to do this. I think these are the, some of the, probably the biggest foundational things for us. And they're for us. For our redemption making us new again, bringing us back into right relationship with the Lord, giving us life, giving us hope. And I've struggled this week and over the last couple of weeks to wrap my head around the central or fundamental application of Christ's incarnation for us. It, it's, for me, it's almost as if it's so huge that the, and the implications of it are so far-reaching, it's, it's hard to wrap words around it and describe it. And as we talked about the idea of Jesus being eternal God, my friend Brandon drew my attention this week to the book of Job. And I want to encourage each of you to read God's speech to Job. Read God's speech to Job in chapters 38 through 41 of that book. And then read Job's response to God in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. If you want to try and wrap your head around what Jesus emptied himself of, what he set aside in order to express his own divine nature as a bondservant on our behalf, read those chapters 
and then read a gospel. It's the same God you hear taking, talking in both Job and in the gospels. It's the same God. He has the same eternal, unchanging, divine nature of the one true God. He laid the foundations of the earth while the angels watched and shouted for joy. He makes the sun rise and set. He waters the land with snow and rain and dew. He has storehouses of hailstones and lightning reserved for days of trouble and war, he says. He set the stars in the heavens. He made the wild animals of the wilderness and tends to their every need. Even the greatest and the mightiest of beasts are his handiwork and obey him. His voice is like thunder and no one can stand against him. He's all that and more. You see it in Job and elsewhere in Scripture. And in the form of man, he was born of a woman. Just like us. He soiled himself as a baby. He suckled at his mother's breast. He learned to talk and walk. He had to flee a maniac who tried to kill him as an infant. He learned to work with bare hands. He served his heavenly father and his fellow man. His own people constantly tried to lay hands on him, even as he lovingly laid his hands on the least of them. His own townsfolk in Nazareth could only see the man and not the God in him. When he told them the truth, they tried to drive him off a cliff. His own brothers didn't believe he was the son of God before he died. He had to pay taxes, even to his own temple. He attended church and religious high feast days and obeyed all the law. He washed the feet of his own disciples. He was betrayed and abandoned by his own disciples. He was falsely accused and condemned. He was mocked and beaten. He was crucified to death on a wooden cross. His heavenly Father turned his face away from him while he hung on that cursed tree. His corpse was buried in the ground. Read about it in the Gospels. He was a man. I don't know which to be more in awe of. The expression of divine power and majesty and glory that I see in Job and elsewhere in Scripture, or the expression of divine power that restrained divine power and majesty and glory so that we could know the depths of his divine love and long-suffering and mercy and believe and be saved. I don't know which. Quite frankly, that's probably a false dichotomy because it's both. It's both. They're not two separate gods. It's one God, one nature, two expressions that fully reveal the one nature. It is this 
the fullness of God expressed in the complete divine nature and expression in Jesus that Paul is calling the Philippians to fix their attention on and to conform their mindsets to. If the one and only should determine to stoop so low and give so much in service to you and to me, then surely you and I can set aside our just claims to rights and set aside self in the same nature as Him because His Spirit dwells in us, right? And in so doing, think more highly of others than of ourselves. This is what Paul is saying to the Philippian church. There were divisions among them beginning to beginning to form, and he said, no, no, you're dividing because you're thinking of yourselves. That's not the mind of Christ. That's not the expression of Christ to each other or to the world around you. Be of this mindset. In awe of the man and God, that we see in Jesus Christ. We can stoop low. Just like him, when he stooped down in the upper room, took off his outer garments, and washed the feet of his disciples who were arguing about who was going to have the higher place in glory. John tells us that knowing from where he came and to where he was going. He set it all aside and he washed their filthy feet. That is the expression of exactly what he did when he came out of heaven and took on the form of flesh and it's the expression of exactly what he's telling us we need to do. That's the application. I don't have three points for you. <laughs> That's it. It's one point, but it's a critical point. Let's pray. Holy Father, great and mighty God, merciful and loving God, Oh, what an amazing thing you have done to come and dwell amongst us, not just as a pillar of cloud and fire, but as a man in flesh, restraining all of your incredible power to serve us, to reveal yourself to us, the fullness of yourself, so that we might believe and be saved. Thank you, Lord, for becoming our sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for coming into our world and identifying with us, for becoming the perfect comforter, the perfect mediator, the God who really can relate with his creation, who's not afraid to be right in the midst of it, who's unchanged by the creation, but who changes the creation by his mere presence. Lord, would you change us, conform us into the image of your Son, 
and fill us with the joy of the Holy Spirit as we rejoice in the fact that you have come and that you are coming back again. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.